Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Every fall for the past 42 years, Toronto, Ontario has played home to an international film festival that brings together hundreds of thousands of movie fans, film critics, theater owners, film distributors, and a whole constellation of general and professional audiences to watch some of the best new international independent and art house cinema. On today's episode of the show, I'll be joined by Madison Art Cinema's founder and owner, Arnold Gorlick, to talk about our experiences at this year's Toronto International Film Festival, which ran from September 7th to September 17th and featured almost 340 movies, many of which were making their world premieres. Although no one attendee can catch up with all 340 flicks over the course of the 11-day festival, Arnold and I did manage to watch, between the two of us, 36 different movies, about 10%, not bad, uh, with some overlap, so we'll have plenty to share on our favorites, least favorites, biggest surprises, and biggest disappointments from this year's fest. But without further ado, I'd like to welcome back to the show Arnold Gorlick. Arnold is the founder, owner, and operator of the Madison Arts Cinemas, a two-screen independent movie theater in Madison, Connecticut, that's been sharing some of the best in independent and art house movies for the past 17 years. Before his stint in Madison, Arnold spent over two decades as the managing director of the York Square Cinemas on Broadway in New Haven. Arnold, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here, as always, and thank you for spending... Uh, Rosh Hashanah with us. Here on, <laughs> here don't don't tell my rabbi. <laughs> um, so, Arnold, last year, uh, I think I read that something like 460,000 people went to the Toronto International Film Festival. And I imagine really? between general audiences and uh, the, um, uh, the film critics, the professionals, that something, you know, maybe that's not the exact number of people who saw movies, but... According to Wikipedia, the number of people brought to Toronto for the Toronto Film Fest was over 400,000, which seems like a phenomenally large number of people. But hey, this is one of the biggest film festivals in the world. I think it's um, the biggest. Uh, so before we start talking about the movies, I want to ask you, why do you go to the Toronto Film Fest? I know this isn't your first year. This is your, I'm going to say sixth or seventh. Uh, I'll get the actual. Fourth. Fourth? fourth. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what, what brings you up to Toronto every fall? I'm in the movie business. I'm a motion picture exhibitor. I love movies. I love to know the state of the art, what's coming out. Uh, I have a charmed life. I have wonderful work. Yesterday I went to New York and saw two movies as part of my job. Um, but so you're, you're going up there, and I'm going to ask you to pull the microphone a little bit closer to your mouth. Sure, Perfect. Sure. Thank you. So you're, you're going up there, obviously, to watch movies, to talk with people in the movie business, but, but maybe most importantly, to see... Which movies you want to bring to your theater over the upcoming months right. and years? It gives right? me a sense of how to sort things out because I can't see everything. I can't even go to every screening in New York uh, to see them. I sometimes they send me a link or a DVD, and I have to be honest. I hate watching movies at home. I mm -hmm. really do. I'm one of the last ones, and I don't say it out of snobbery. I sit in a movie theater and I feel how transformed I am, how the ambiance is different, how the sound is different, the size of the screen is different the communal experience, the phone doesn't ring, the cat doesn't purr. Um, it's an immersive experience that moves me. Ever and since I started doing this professionally in 1970, it always moved me since I was a child. And Toronto is a, a pretty unique and special place. To, the Toronto Film Fest is a unique and special place to watch movies because you have you know, people traveling from all over the world to see these flicks, but also some of some of the best theaters that I've been to. I mean, the Scotiabank Theater, where most of the press and industry screenings uh, take place for this festival. I guess all of the screening, all the press and industry screenings take place there now. 
um, is maybe from the outside a relatively unassuming but uh, maybe more traditional uh you know, mega cineplex. It, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't look like anything too special in the asset. But once you get inside those fifteen screens or however many screens there, are, it it is some some of the best sounds, the best projection. It's you have. I mean, I've I've never seen a movie on a screen so big. Um, in I feel like stateside, it's really a wonderful place to just totally immerse yourself in the experience of watching a movie without any distractions. And of course, you're surrounded by people who are as committed to focusing on the movies. Uh, this as clearly, you. I think you'll agree. There's electricity in the air. There's excitement at every every single moment. There's not a moment where something interesting, I mean, and the array of interesting conversations and people to meet, famous and not famous, is just extraordinary. And I get to connect with people that sometimes I only deal with on the phone uh, and whatever. And I'm also fortunate that the distributors uh, smile on my theater and keep inviting me to their important parties and events where i really get to mingle with the talent i i know that uh you've got a you were able to meet one of your your favorite filmmakers and maybe a, a true um kind of cinematic icon of yours at this year's festival and we'll get to that that conversation a little bit later but first i just want to get your general impression um as we're about to you know start talking about the specific movies how was this how was this toronto for you in comparison to others that you've been to do you feel like it was a particularly strong crop of movies was it uh did you maybe make a, a few more connections than you have in previous uh, film festivals? Um, or is it always, I mean, th- over 340 movies, it, it's a bit difficult to um, say any one thing about all of them. But generally, your impression, did you have a good time? Did you, um, did you feel like you, you saw your, your money's worth? I was sad the day I was leaving. I actually felt sadness. I mean, I was happy to come home. I missed my wife. I really did. But uh, I was sad as I was leaving and turning my back on it and walking into Union Station to take the shuttle to the airport. It, uh, I was sorry it was over. What can I say? It's just, it's just great. You, you're there. You see it. This is so, my, my second year going in, and I, I'm, I'm hooked on it. I remember the first time you came on the show to talk about Toronto, you said it's you know, your favorite festival to attend uh, of all of the different kind well, of uh, industries. Well, I never did attend Con. Mm-hmm. I never have attended uh, Con, but this seems to be a more accessible you know, you and I get press and industry passes and we're on a different, we see different screenings than the public who buys tickets sees them. We don't, we don't buy tickets. We have our industry passes to go in and it's, that's a different setting. It's not elitism. I mean, it has to be done that way because the people in the industry have to really be able to see those movies. We can also, as part of our uh, entitlements, see a public screening. We just have to make a slightly different arrangement if there's a conflict for some screening and that we have to see, we can only see a public screening, you can arrange to see it, and one has no problem just contacting the distributor and saying, listen, I couldn't see it at the industry screening, but I got to go to the public screening, and they'll just provide us with tickets. Let's start talking about the movies themselves. I mentioned that we saw, between the two of us, 36 movies, and of those 36, we only saw two in common. So I wonder if we could share some thoughts quickly on on those two, and and I know that you have, um, you know, you want to share some thoughts on how at least one of them uh, was produced um, uh, specifically by Netflix. Uh, so the two movies that we saw, uh, I, I assume in the same screening, or pr- probably in the same screenings, were uh, Dee Reese's new movie Mudbound, uh, right. which is an adaptation of a 2008 novel by Hilary Jordan about two families, one white, one black, 
uh, kind of in their many intersections in 1940s uh, rural kind of apartheid Mississippi uh, in the years of and immediately after World War II. Uh, and the the second movie that we we saw in common was Molly's Game. Um, right. Writer director Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut, starring Jessica Chastain as as Molly Bloom, uh, the, the this, writer for West Wing. Yeah, among yeah, many yes. other things. Yeah, Aaron Sor- and right and of the Social Network. Um, and right. this follows Chastain as an kind of Olympic caliber freestyle skier who gets uh, kind of falls pretty far down the hole of online uh, or not online po- of uh, kind of setting up her own illegal poker games in California and in New York. Well, um, were they illegal? Well, I guess they they were always on she the. Always, she always the hook was that she wasn't skimming. Right. So. From the take, and that w- is what kept it legal. Maybe they, maybe independent is right. probably a better term. Right. In that she was not affiliated with any major she, they casinos. Paid her she was to, to sit in, which is not skimming. Right. Um, so the uh, kind of razor's edge of legality that she's operating in kind of pushes a bit more towards the illegal side when she starts uh, kind of searching for some more uh, kind of dubious high rollers in New York who have some mob connections who who may not um, the Russian mob right. Um, who may not true be story. the people that you want. Yes, yeah, based on a true story. So She um, didn't know they were the Russian mob. Right, well, I think that's a little ambiguous in the movie. I think that she, I mean, clearly she is an incredibly sharp person, right? She's able to read someone just at, at a glance. And I think that her perceptiveness not extending far enough to know whether or not these people are mob is probably a bit of deliberate kind of right. self-obfuscation. Um, but of those two movies, Mudbound and Molly's Game, uh, what do you think? Uh, maybe we'll start with Mudbound and then go over to Molly's Game. I really admired Mudbound. Um, you know, it's increasingly difficult to operate a movie theater, let alone a two-screen, let alone uh, a two-screen theater. I really need four screens. Um, it's feast or famine, and sometimes I'm stuck in a famine, but when the feast comes, I can't partake in the great art that's out there. That said, Mudbound is an unflinching look at race relations and a life in rural Mississippi on the farm. It's called Mudbound because it rains a lot, and the fields are muddy. Everywhere you work, it's work, uh, walk, it's muddy. What was key to me about the movie was how courageous it was and how unflinching the director was in making the movie. And that's the problem, not for me. I want to show a movie that doesn't avert its eyes, that doesn't sanitize something, that shows something with the real power, as difficult as it is to see, of what was really going on there and what the evil of racism is. Now, it's become a hackneyed pro- uh, subject lately, but people don't want to look. I mean, I still, even in my theater, get people say, I don't come to think, I come to be entertained. And I wonder, I said, well, isn't thinking entertaining for you? Uh, but it's not, this is beyond entertainment. This is a transforming experience. It's a visceral experience where you could understand something more about the world to affront it more ably. You know, one uh, kind of narrative technique that D. Reese takes in this movie that I really admired in the days and, and weeks that have passed since I first saw it is that we really get a sense, I mean, we get an, a, an internal uh, and spoken monologue from, I think, six different characters. And this is not a movie with one voiceover narration but with uh manifold and usually the voice the voiceover narration in any movie can you know can kind of go either way sometimes you know movies are inherently a visual medium and so we want directors to tell us stories 
um, primarily through images, at least I do. Um, when I have someone telling me either exactly what's happening on the screen at the same time or telling me what's not happening on screen, it seems a bit um, redundant or uh, a little clunky. But here, in having so many different narrators, I think Dee Reese is really interested in each individual's experience of racism in 1940s Mississippi. Um, we get Jason Clark, who plays the, um, not the, the patriarch of the white family, but the young, uh, the white man who moves his family to a farm, who's trying to establish himself as worthy of this lineage of white slave owners and slaveholders, property owners. Jonathan um, Banks played the patriarch. And Jonathan, he, right. Jo- and he was, you'll remember him from uh, Breaking, Breaking Bad. Bad. Yeah. And man, was he great. And he, and he plays, uh, you're right, a, a truly con- contemptible and kind of unredeemable or irredeemable uh, figure. But then we also get uh, inside the head of Jason Clark's wife, Carrie Mulligan, uh, who is a woman uh, kind of moved from a more cultured, uh, whether Oxford or some city in Mississippi, uh, to the farm. I love the way that she fights to keep her piano uh, in in the rural home. Um, But then we also get inside the heads of the Johnson family. Mary J. Blige plays the wife. Robert Morgan plays Hap, the the father. I didn't even realize I was looking at Mary I I didn't when I was watching until afterwards. And I think she does a really strong job, a, a very composed and relatively still performance, but I think the the winner for me, or the the most affecting one, was of Hap, and I think you agree as well. The the father of the Johnson family, who embodies all of the painful contradictions that African American men had to live in, especially in mid century. He was and my favorite character. He's he's a sharecropper, right in between, you know forefathers who were slaves and his son who is you know a veteran and vying to be more of a civil rights pioneer he's someone who has sacrificed everything in his life to get a little bit of land and the the tragedy and endurance and persistence of of that of that man and that performance i i really admired um unflinching is a good way to describe the unsentimental love in that family it wasn't you know this wasn't this wasn't a sentimental thing where the violin started playing there was there was love uh there and how they reconciled all the disparate aspects of their life. Now, this movie was produced by Netflix, and after uh, we both saw it, and you, you saw that it was produced by Netflix, you told me that if you knew beforehand it was produced by Netflix, you would have boycotted it. Could you tell me and the listeners where that comes from and why? Well, throughout movie history, people have always, people have always uh, said, oh, this means the death of cinema. We're going to show more than two reels. People don't want to see more than 20 minutes of a movie. That's the death of cinema. We can go on through each age. Color will be the death of cinema. Talkies will be the death of cinema. Television will be the death of cinema. DVDs will be the uh, death of cinema. So we could always say, ah, there's a death knell here which we could ignore, just like the others. But something seismic is going on now, which is changing um, movie-going habits in a way that's that has oddly united distributors and exhibitors like me. Movie industry is divided into three tiers, production, distribution, and exhibition. But with the influx of Amazon and Netflix, a couple of things have happened. They have almost unlimited resources. What, means, what this means is they're going after titles they're gonna, that they want to distribute into movie theaters. That money means that the more independent exhibitors like Fox Searchlight or Roadside or whatever, in order to get those movies, are going to have to pony up more money. It's going to be more expensive to rent the movies. It's going to be harder to make a profit on the movies. They could just wear everybody out. The second thing is the changing the model. The model, no matter how much the window has closed between DVD releases or streaming releases, 
has always been it opens first in a movie theater unless it's original content like uh, Breaking Bad or something like that with a series. Opens in movie theaters. By opening in a movie theater, it confers an aura on the picture and then it gets to go online or DVDs or streaming or whatever it is. Well, now what's happening is I believe that Mudbound is going to open first on Netflix and then two weeks later be available to be shown for theatrical releases. That's something I'll try to read. I, I already have trouble. I've played movies when open them when there's video on demand the first day. I've been forced to because some, sometimes there was nothing else. This is really a real blow to me. And and Mudbound certainly isn't the first, as you're saying. I mean, I remember seeing Chirac was produced by Amazon uh, and you know, Spike Lee Chirac from a few years ago. And this is a difficult thing, I think, for a lot of movie watchers and movie lovers because Netflix and Amazon getting involved in the world of movie production tends to make for a more uh, a more diverse and interesting and accessible movie landscape for viewers, for customers, right? Because... I mean, Mudbound is a type of movie that, I don't know, maybe a, a, a more traditional studio would not have taken a, a risk on, on producing. And so, oh, I think so. I, think, I that, think they just got outbid by Netflix. Yeah. Oh, you think that they would, they would have gone for Sure. Yeah. I don't know who else was uh, in the running yeah. for But listen, let me ask you what you really think. Mudbound in a movie theater or Mudbound, no matter how wonderful your in-home theater is, at home. Right. Where would you want? I mean, that's I mean, a powerful it's, movie. It's almost always hands down. These movies are most affecting in the theater, right? The, the big screen, the quiet of it, as you're saying, the focus of it, um, especially towards the end of Mudbound when we, when we build up to that harrowing climax of the kind of the Ku Klux Klan's assault upon uh, one of the key members of this, this cast. Um, I, I want to, uh, I want to transition a little bit to some movies that we haven't spoken about. I know that, so we're both big fans of, of Molly's Game, unless if there's anything in particular you want to say about, and Jessica Chastain gives a fantastic performance. Sorkin, you know, is known for this uh, rat-a-tat dialogue, and I think he's found an editing style, he and his editor, that really matches the dialogue beautifully, especially in that opening sequence when we have Jessica Chastain, um, you know, the 10 minutes when she's still a viable Olympic-caliber right. skier, and then everything goes kaput. Um, I found that beautifully edited right. uh, and acted and the backdrop red. of it's, her her struggles with her psychologist father yeah and uh, played the, by kevin the, costner yeah and played by kevin costner what was fascinating is i couldn't absorb all the facts that were coming at me so quickly because they were describing right. um these poker games with terms i never heard of and what it meant and what this meant that what this bet meant at a certain moment so I just stopped trying to internalize it and just watch and went with the momentum of the movie, which was somewhat fast-paced. And I, I think that's an okay thing to do with a movie yeah. like Molly's Game because you don't need to know the most arcane technical terminology in order to enjoy and feel for the characters in the story. You know, we know the arc of the character. You know, all the more credit to Sorkin and uh, to Chastain for being able to deliver that, you know, so fluidly, that difficult vocabulary. But um, this is not a game that you have to, or not a movie that you have to be a poker lover uh, to watch. But, no, not at all. Yeah, and maybe it'll help. But now, uh, but they know, did hint at one thing. What's that? They talked about, uh, you know, they didn't name names of all the Hollywood people <laughs> oh, right. and real life people who sat in on <laughs> these poker games. Right. And but uh, they did refer to this one Yankee superstar <laughs> who just couldn't tolerate not being included in the table game. Right. And everybody knew immediately it was Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> <laughs> it had to be Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> um, and I should say, Michael Sarah has a wonderful performance oh, as, these, as the slimiest of the right. the Hollywood participants in uh, these poker games. 
Um, first, I want to say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. This is one of my favorite shows all year because I get to be joined by my cinephilic buddy, Arnold Gorlick of Madison Art Cinemas to talk about the Toronto International Film Festival. And now, probably the question I'm most looking forward to asking all, um, all interview, Arnold, we saw a lot of movies um, separately, and you saw something like 20 or 25 movies that I did not see. Um, of those, what, what, what are some of your, what are your some favorites from the festival that I, besides Molly's Game and Mudbound that we saw together, what are some that I need to know about that graced Arnold's eyes? The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> There's almost no describing it. There's no director like him, period. There's nobody who takes the risks that he does. That nobody has this, you know, I, I told you I, I got to speak to him one-on-one for at least 20 minutes, and it was an extraordinary thing. And I said to him, you know, I always said that if Guillermo del Toro didn't have a creative outlet, he'd be in prison. He said, absolutely. He said, not even a bank robber, something much more sinister. <laughs> he goes, oh, you told him that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, he agreed with wonderful. me. Completely. He put his hands on my shoulders. <laughs> he said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you're so absolutely for right. listeners who may not know that name, Guillermo del Toro, I don't know if he's Mexican or Mexican-American. He's but Mexican. No, he's not Mexican-American. He's, he's Mexican. He's Mexican. Director of, most notably, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, the incredibly the imaginative. The Hellboy series. The Hellboy series. Uh, and he did a, a, a Pacific Rim, quite a big right. summer blockbuster from right. a few years ago. But he has a new movie out, The Shape of Water. And can, uh, can you describe a bit the indescribable? I don't even know what the basic plot is of sure. this movie. Well, he always has a monster in his movies. But mm-hmm. monster shouldn't be considered monster like in other movies, the Frankenstein monster or... Uh, Nosferatu or something. Oh no, yeah, yeah. Uh, something. His 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 monsters are protagonists, not antagonists. Uh, as he said, I never betray my monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and he always dreamed since he was a child of making movies with mm-hmm. monsters, which really deal with our alter egos and our fantasy and dream world. That really has an impact on the everyday real world. Look at the merging of fantasy world with everyday li- uh, with real life in uh, Pan's Labyrinth, and we were equally invested in both, not saying, oh, this isn't real, so I won't be as invested in it. The fantastic world I was committed to as I was to what was happening in real life to Olivia. In this movie, he deals with the question of other and um, how we view other. And he conscientiously um, said it in 1962 when uh, our government collected a specimen from the Amazon, which seemed to be kind of half man, half fish. And it had the ability to breathe out of water and in water, not like a mud skipper. It had two separate breathing systems. And there were things to learn scientifically for the space program and all kinds of things that they wanted to do. So the question then became, do we destroy it and dissect it or do we just keep it and so on? And everybody had a different view of the other, but the... uh, Everybody who acted ate up the screen, but Michael Shannon is off the charts. Michael Shannon is off the charts in this movie. He, when he's on the screen, you just can't. I couldn't take my eyes off the screen no matter what during this movie. It's an adult fairy tale. And the reason he said it in 1962, he said because that was the height of the Cold War when our feelings of fears of others, the evil empire, the Soviet Union, the rise of communism, containment, and so on and so forth was there. And he said it out loud, and I'll use a different word than he, uh, than he used uh, when he said it. He said, but, you know, 
we go back to 1962 and he says and when we see people wearing hats that says make america great again that's the era they're talking about and he said and if you weren't white anglo-saxon protestant everybody else was screwed and he said that's really the nostalgia that's being looked on he says but every day we have a choice he literally said this every day we have a choice to wake up and to act on fear or to act on love he says and he looks sincerely he says and love is the answer and then he just this is the touching he goes as silly as it sounds love is the answer he's an extraordinary man he uh commented on the perks that come with being a director the privileges you get the car that comes up the food the uh, assistants and aides who do everything for you. He says, I really have to put this out of my mind. Otherwise, I would make a movie just like everybody else. I can't take this too seriously. He remains grounded, authentic, genuine, a man whose heart is really overflowing with love. He loves his cast. He wrote this movie, for I mean, every part. Richard Jenkins, Sally Hawkins, Michael Shannon, uh, Octavia Spencer, and so on and so forth. And he also did it through the lens of the invisible people, the janitors, who no one would be uh, suspect would have had a role in the outcome of the plot of the movie. I it, mean, none of the characters in the movie would have. That, you know, one of the, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is a movie that I think both of us love, uh, and it is one that I admire so greatly because of how political it is, while still being true to this uh, childlike, nightmarish fantasy that it's describing. And this movie quite deliberately takes place during the Spanish Civil War, right? Correct. These are fascists who are, Spanish fascists who are, um, who are assaulting this young girl's family and hometown. Uh, and the, the nightmarish presence of these monsters is quite a kind of literal interpretation of the threat of this ideology that is very much in the real world and not, you know, in the woods surrounding this girl's home and not just uh, a imaginary fantasy in her head. And I think that that's such an important element of Gil de Tomo's horror and that it's politically relevant and specific horror. It's, it's not just a matter of, um, you know, I saw... In the horror is the removal of love and not having yeah. a loving response. That's what the real, real horror is. But, you know... I don't know what, I didn't read this at the time, and I was surprised I didn't see it among the reviews, but I, was, I saw it as a parallel story of the Anne Frank story, where Anne Frank lived in this garret. In her head, she created a world of options, nobility, and hu humanity in it, and just outside the walls was a world of complete horror, which had nothing to do with the world she constructed in her head that defended itself from. The same with Olivia. Olivia went into this, fantasy world where she could act nobly where she had choices where she had free will where she could act kindly where she could affect things and had a little bit of power to do some good that's what i saw in pan's labyrinth what can i say i, I love the movie so much and i'll never get tired of watching it so arnold gorlick's first uh, kind of heartfelt recommendation from uh, this year's toronto film fest is uh, guillermo del guillermo del toro's the shape of water um, before we get to your next pick, I want to share one of my favorites, Arnold, which I know you will be playing uh, in two Sundays at your Sunday. Oh, never mind. I, I'm actually... <laughs> private screening. It's going to be a private screening. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I am very much looking forward to a movie called The Florida Project uh, getting a, a wider release. This is a movie, the second uh, feature, or maybe the second feature on my radar, by director, writer-director Sean Baker, 
whose 2015 movie Tangerine made my top 10 list of the year about two transgender prostitutes on the kind of seedier end of the Hollywood strip uh, in California. And it's a Chris, the Tangerine is a Christmas movie, a very un- unusual Christmas movie, but one that, you know, with great empathy and honesty and kind of relatability explores the friendship between these two women uh, in a way that I think everyone can understand. Granted, they are living on the razor's edge of poverty. These are outsiders, ebullient outsiders, but outsiders nevertheless who have been pushed to the edges of society. But the the kind of fundamental way that they relate to one another uh, is thoroughly you know, recognizable to, to anyone uh, based on the, their closest friendships. And the Florida Project operates in a, a similar way. It follows three, you know, it's, I think it's an interesting pairing with um, Pan's Labyrinth in that it follows three children, no older than uh, five or six years old, who live in a pay-by-the-week hotel uh, or motel on the outskirts of Orlando, Florida. Uh, and if Pan's Labyrinth is inundated in the um, the kind of Spanish Civil War filtered through the imagination of this young girl, here we have a pretty realistic portrait of a thoroughly you know surreal aspect of American life, which is one Florida, but also the the uh, the kind of hyper commercialized kind of exurbs of of major cities. In that these people live in. You know, they live proximate to Disney World. This is an adult-created <laughs> fantasy land um, where people, you know, one of the best, you know, my favorite parts of the movie is that in the background, you always see helicopters um, landing, taking off, landing, taking off uh, just behind the hotel. Th- this is a place, you know, a vacation resort for adults to just drop in, have whatever bizarre fantasy that this culture has produced for them, and then immediately leave, immediately leave. But the Florida Project spends time with the people who live here. Um, and filter through the, you know, making movies that are authentically from the perspective of children is a difficult thing to do because I think an adult trying to describe what a child's life is like, um, it's easy to, you know, not quite get the vocabulary right, to not quite get the sensibility right, um, to provide too much of adult insight into how a child experiences the world. Here we really are both in terms of the camera eye, in terms of the perspective of the characters, we are following around these five, you know, uh, these five-year-old kids as they, as they explore this seedy motel that is kind of in the shadow of the fantasy world of um, of Disney World, and they are excited to be alive. Um, they are innocent insofar as they don't quite understand the extent of their poverty, of the prostitution and drug dealing, uh, and uh, the um, the people who are kind of downest on their luck uh, who are living in this motel. Um, the most painful, uh, you know, realization of the movie is that the, the kids and the adults are living and they have similar approaches to life and that the, the adults, at least the mom of the main character is someone who is so focused on the present in the way that her child is so focused on enjoying the present in a way that adults cannot responsibly do. I think this movie settles on, um, and that ultimately her responsibility is to looking after her kid and her family. Um, now it is an incredibly energetic movie, ebullient. The you know the colors of this area of Florida, these bright pinks, oranges, oversized pirate. It's uh, it's a fantasy world that is very much a real part of America right now. Um, and I, I think that it's a beautiful portrait of growing up um, poor on the edge of society, but just full of life, friendship. It's a very life affirming movie in a very strange and often queasy American environment. Has a great actor too, Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. I didn't see it. Oh. Willem Dafoe is, you know, Willem Dafoe, I think, is usually typecast as as a villain or a villainous figure. You know, is someone who is a threatening presence here. He is the most benevolent uh, motel owner one could possibly imagine. 
Um, so the Florida Project, I'm not sure when that's going to uh, be making a wider release, but definitely uh, check it out, and, and Tangerine as well. Um, all right, Arnold, after The uh, the Shape of Water, do you have another favorite movie uh, that you saw at this year's TIFF? Yeah, every once in a while, I see a movie that I'm absolutely committed to dislike every once in a while, and then I walk in, I've been overwhelmed with its greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, I criticized... I, I was critical of my film buyer when he wanted to see I, Tanya, a movie about Tanya Harding. I thought I knew everything about the story. I didn't want to see this person. I didn't want to elevate this person that did this deserve a movie or whatever it was. Unfortunately for me that morning, uh, I was a little late in getting to see Lady Bird. I did get to see it. All the seats were taken for that screening. So I said, I'll see the comedy, The Death of Stalin, which everybody says is hilarious. Um, that was full. So the last movie left was I, Tanya, so I walked in a little bit late. It knocked me out. <laughs> Margot Robbie, who I always thought, you know, all the actors are fine professionals. They don't get to be in a movie unless they could do their job. But every once in a while, someone crosses the level of such commitment into high art and in this case, Margot Robbie simply gives one of the greatest on-screen performances I have ever seen in my entire life. You, you won't believe it when you see it. I learned so much uh, from the movie as well to check your prejudices at the door because I certainly had a prejudice about the commonness of uh, Tanya Harding the world she came from, the values that she held, and I had a much more humanized... This was not a sentimental movie. Mm. And Alison Janney as her mother, you cannot take your eyes off of her when she's on the screen, the abuse, uh, the abusive mother. I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to give away specifically what it was that I learned, which was really enlightening for me, which makes me now have a different view, Tanya Harding. But in its style, it's a combination of American hustle and Goodfellas with that propulsive music taking you from scene to scene, quick zooms and pannings of the camera, uh, watching them do utterly stupid things before your eyes, which is so tragic and stupid that it's comical. Mm -hmm. But like Goodfellas, they break the fourth wall and talk to the audience. Uh, Just like the Ray Liotta character did in Goodfellas, he would say, so Paulie didn't want me to go over here, so I had to go over here, and he's walking while he's talking to us. Well, they'll have characters who look out at the audience, and almost every character spoke to us, and one character would look out at the audience and say, well, wait do you see what happens next. Mm. <laughs> and then you see what happens next. The movie's great. And, you know, that breaking of the fourth wall doesn't work in just every movie. No. But it, it takes a, a uniquely propulsive movie, as you were saying, right. one with just an incredible amount of energy and direction for the suddenness of that stop, uh, mm. to, you know, to look at the audience and say, this is, you won't believe what's going to happen next to really thrill you because you really want to see what's going to happen next. Well, in I, Tanya, what it did was instead of breaking the fourth wall and taking you out of it, it drew us into the screen. I, it took you into the movie and it was propulsive. It yeah. was propulsive. It's a great movie. You know, I haven't seen, you know, the only movie I think I've seen Margot Robbie in is a very small role in movie with a similar style, The Big Short, uh, about the financial crisis from a few years ago. That no, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. I haven't seen The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, yeah. Oh, this she, gorgeous right, she woman a, walked on. I said, where did right. that woman come it's from? It's a big role in that. So now I don't just think of her as a pretty face. Right. This is a consummate artist, utterly dedicated to her craft, willing to go through any kind of pain. 
to uh, produce authenticity and, and uh, believability. So the uh, so we've two picks from Arnold thus far: uh, "The Shape of Water" by Guillermo del Toro, uh, and "I Tanya" by let's see, Craig Gillespie. Is that a director? I, it's not a name uh, that I'm familiar with. Craig Gillespie. With. I'm Craig not, Gillespie. I, he did Lars and the Real Girl, a movie oh, okay. I loved. I just loved with <laughs> Ryan, uh, Gosling. Ryan Gosling. Yes, um, I'm going to. And Bobby Cannavale is also oh, in. Uh, I, Tanya, and he's great, you know, yeah. these dims and those kind of uh, <laughs> scruffy reporter who kind of like started to reveal the details of the Tanya Harding scandal and then oh. talks to the audience about what was going on. He, in fact, his only role was to talk to us. He never had an interaction with another character. Yeah. It would shoot to him. He'd be sitting at his desk, leaning back, and he'd talk to us in a kind of Brooklyn accent. He was great. That that is another. It's a movie that I also uh, was. I don't know about prejudice against, but I just wasn't particularly interested in going yeah, into Toronto. But hearing your enthusiasm, be for interested. It, I can't can't wait to see it. I want to see it. Oh, this is something else I want to say. I missed the beginning, so I knew I had time to see the beginning and then get to my other screening. I saw the beginning, and even though I had already, I couldn't get up. I saw the movie a second <laughs> time. <laughs> I missed the other screening. It's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> uh, hey, that's a sign of a special movie. Really I mean, when you when you can't turn your eyes away. Uh, I'm going to quickly share another uh, favorite pick of mine, which is one that you alluded to not being able to get into, uh, which was Armando Iannucci's The Death of Stalin. Uh, yeah. This is a political satire from the creator of the television show Veep with Julia Louis Dreyfus uh, and In the Loop. Uh, again, I mean, kind of like Aaron Sorkin, someone who is capable of writing this mile-a-minute dialogue that just skewers the inanity, absurdity, moral depravity, and just kind of vacuity, emptiness of, of most political leaders. This movie takes place in 1953 Moscow uh, with the, the death of the uh, dictator of the Soviet Union and follows the six or seven kind of people highest up in the Communist Party in the Soviet Union as they vie to become the next kind of absolute leader of the party and of the country. Uh, it stars a incredible cast of comedic English-speaking actors. Um, Steve Buscemi plays Nikita Khrushchev, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, uh, Jason Isaacs, uh, Rupert Friend. This is a, a an experienced group of, uh, of English-speaking comedic actors. And it you know worked in a way that uh, maybe my biggest disappointment of the uh, festival was a movie called Suburbicon by George Clooney that That's what I heard from everybody. was a, a similar kind of melding of, kind of slapstick comedy and issues-based drama and that, that takes place in 1950s suburbia and is much more focused on uh, a kind of haywire uh, murder mystery centered on Matt Damon, but George Clooney has written in this this really unexplored and, and modeling take on the abuse that uh, a new on the block black family experiences and they get such short shrift in the story that the slapstick of the other half really feels offensive to the the drama and, and the horror that that other family is experiencing the death of stalin is the exact opposite and it finds the perfect balance between the slapstick comedy of you know all of these inane you know politicians who are trying to replace stalin as the head of the communist party but we also realize that these aren't just uh you know fun people to watch goof around these people are literally willing to kill thousands of people at the snap of a finger in order to make an opponent look bad, uh, in order to exert a certain amount of control over one part of the country. Uh, and this is something that I think is speaks to something true about, especially, I mean, th watching this movie in the era of Trump, uh, it's not too uh, difficult to make that imaginative leap to think about. Here is a cabinet of psychophants, you know, people who are 
bent on pleasing their absolute leader because he all he demands is loyalty. And in a regime where loyalty, as opposed to law or morality or ethics or empathy, is what drives people, um, it's very easy for loyalty to oneself take precedence over loyalty to your country or any person. And yet, despite these horrific things, I hear the movies hilarious. It's it's hilarious, but it's also um, you know hilarious in a very upsetting way. Um, in a way that it's supposed to be upsetting. Um, it's, I, I can't, this is the most fun I had at any movie at Toronto, but also one that made me maybe most uh, despondent about the political situation. But I, I think it works as a political satire, not just a slapstick comedy. Um, also, Steve Buscemi as Nikita Khrushchev. It's great. It's just wonderful. Um, I want to ask you about... Um, Either well, maybe some movies that were a movie that was a, either a surprise or a disappointment. One that you didn't have. I guess Tanya, I Tanya, was a bit of a surprise, and that right. you really didn't have high expectations. Any movies that you were really looking forward to that were um, did not live up to your expectations, or just another one that you didn't know anything about and you were delighted to see? Uh, yeah, I didn't have many disappointments of what I saw. That's oh cool. yeah, one. I can't really say it's a bad movie it's just that it was very long it was going to cut into another screening it was slow and slow doesn't bother me i, I mean i love the tree of wooden clogs that three hours of fanny and alexander doesn't oh, yeah. change his tempo it's, yeah. i never wanted it to end so it's not that it was slow but it was a little like watching the grass grow at some points it was ambiance and impressionism until the melodrama start a french movie called the guardians about the women left behind to tend to a rather large farm mm. and to do the hard work as their sons and brothers and husbands uh, were off at World War One, and uh, what the consequence, and as they start to lose them, I'm sure it's a good movie. I didn't last to see the end of it because I want to see more urgent, more urgent things. I know that you were really looking forward to the Square. That was a kind of a required movie for Absolutely you when you went there. And movie. I wonder what what did you? This is Ruben Oslin's new movie. Well, he did one of my favorite movies of two years ago at Toronto, uh, Force Majeure. Uh, we played it at my Sunday Cinema Club. I played it at the theater. And I don't know. I kept looking at the audience. Nobody thought as highly <laughs> as, <laughs> oh, I, love that as I did. I, love, I yeah. loved Force Majeure. And, um, the, about a family on ski vacation in the Alps and the, the father right. thinks that an avalanche is about to... Uh, and he engulf. runs away and doesn't pick up his kids, but the <laughs> mother gr- picks up the kids. And, and he the just, father, he grabs his phone. Right. And he grabs his phone and he runs to safety. And it changes and everything. Loses, oh. It even changes... Uh, collateral relationships. Right. <laughs> that is a dark family satire. I, I but so the, the square also satire, but in the contemporary art world. Uh, this is, um, I mean, this in the positive sense. And th- this is the problem that I find: people don't want to go to the movies to experience any kind of discomfort. Hmm. Um, they don't want to experience. So many of them don't want to experience any kind of sadness. And I said, but there's richness in loss. It's what makes the rest of life by contrast, really worth living. You can't, Like in music, you just can't have one sound level or uh, uh, a monotone. There has, has to be this kind of uh, or counterpoint going on. And um, the square is discomforting. Sometimes you're laughing because you're just discomforted. <laughs> um, uh, there's, to me, one of the most interestingly and creatively done post-coital scenes I've ever seen in my life, which I won't describe here, but it's it's discomforting and funny at the same time. But in the beginning, because it deals with the shallowness and the pretentiousness that art can be and the upper classes of pain, 
placing importance on objects that may or may not have meaning that we impart to it that is not uh, not necessarily intrinsic. Um, I had the same impatience in the beginning mm-hmm. of the superficiality of things and dealing with the pa- problem of people with no problems. But after that 20 minutes of living through that setup, I was hooked until the end. And it's a long movie. It's two hours and 27 minutes, something like that. And this, I was hooked. this is a movie that won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Best of Cannes. So, Best of Cannes. Won, won, that doesn't happen by accident. But, you know, yeah. they... Let's give credit to Khan. They keep giving the golden palms to movies that never wind up doing business. Grande <laughs> <Right>. Bellezza, <laughs> um, the great beauty, and you know we we can go on melancholia, yeah. <laughs> things like that. So they do it. They don't have an eye towards the box office. I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know if I'll room for it. We'll see. I uh, I was able to catch the first. 45 minutes at the square. Unfortunately, it was my last screen and I had to run to catch the train to get right. to the airport. But I did make it up to that, um, the post-coital scene that you alluded to. And and I loved it. It's a Swedish movie, but it does have Elizabeth Moss from Mad right. Men in uh, it. She's and she great, whatever she wonderful does. wonderful in it. Um, yeah. And she... <laughs> Um, yes, a very unusual interpretation of uh, how So you never got to see the conversation in one of the uh, uh, viewing rooms in the museum with one of the elderly lady guards sitting there getting to overhear the conversation. <laughs> oh, I did. Oh, I did see that. I did see that. <laughs> it yes. Was hilarious. Well, the, I think I, you know, I really enjoyed the first uh, 40 minutes quite a bit. And I think that a, uh, a um, part of the plot that may be representative of the satire of the movie is that this chief curator at a contemporary art museum in Sweden, uh, he is pickpocketed in a somewhat elaborate, <laughs> like uh, scheme on the street outside of the hotel and his way of trying to get his wallet back is that he and a coworker of his go to the t- like the thirteen story tenement building where he thinks that his phone has been whisked off to, and he puts a note in every single mailbox. Oh, he has someone put a note. Yeah, someone. Him. Well, no, he he's oh, the he one who runs right. on the hall, and he, he puts a note in every single mailbox. That is this not like none too obscure threat about how if his phone's not returned to Seven Eleven, he's going knowing to... knowing that the, per- <laughs> the perpetrator is among those right. dozens and dozens of people in the apartment. House. But I I thought that captured pretty beautifully the the sense of you know privilege that this man has right. No matter the inconvenience he's going to cause to ninety nine percent of the people in this building, if it means getting his phone back it's right it, it's worth it um and he did particular harm to one yes yes that's right um we only have and of course it it was in contrast to what the purpose of the square was is to draw people <laughs> to, to their most to altruistic together. uh co- collaborative and loving instincts in the world and look how he behaved in real life um there uh, there's you know this this always happens with Toronto. we we only have a few minutes left but there are so many more movies that I know I, I want to talk about In the Fade, a German movie by Fatih Akin was, was one of my favorites starring Diane Kruger. Mother, I thought was a really interesting movie that's out right now by Darren Aronofsky. Jennifer Lawrence is, I didn't I think, see one it, of, not because it's bad. Someone told me the movie is absolutely fabulous and someone I, I have a high opinion of and said, but I won't be able to look at it for 10 years and if I did see it again, I'd need therapy, but the movie was great. <laughs> and then I even looked yeah. at the forward online this morning, the Daily Forward, the Jewish, and it said... Don't watch Mother around Russia show. I haven't found out why. I'm going to read it later. Um, Jennifer Lawrence really proves herself to be one of the most talented actresses uh, working today. Um, downsizing, Alexander Payne's new movie, I, I liked a lot. But You did? I, I did. I, that mm. one was not liked by many people who no, saw it. I and, did you I, see it? No, I, when I, I wasn't interested in the uh, synopsis. 
and people came out and were and disappointed they, with it. Quite mixed on it. I, I thought, um, I mean, this is Alexander Payne's new movie starring Matt Damon as a Nebraska occupational therapist who decides to solve his, you know, all of life's problems, his relationship problems, his uh, financial problems. He wants to minimize his environmental footprint by, um, by shrinking himself down to one two thousandth the size of, of his body. I actually think it's a pretty ingenious concept, but I know a lot, of, it's, it's one with almost infinite possibilities. Maybe some people were not happy with where the movie winds up going, but I thought it worked. But I, I want to give you the final uh, two or three minutes, Arnold. Can you share with us um, any movies that you think that, you know, you saw at Toronto that you really want to bring to your theater in Madison? Now that you, you, you know, you don't have to definitely know that you're bringing them, but, you know, movies that you think, not only did I enjoy it, but I think it's a really appropriate fit for my theater. The Leisure Seeker. The Leisure Seeker derives its name from an old 1950s Winnebago recreational vehicle that this elderly couple, played by Donald Sutherland and Helen Mirren, own. When, uh, to the surprise of their children, clearly Donald Sutherland has experienced dementia, loss of memory, things like that. And his wife, who was much more vibrant and present, and she absolutely uh, clear-witted, played by Helen Mirren, we don't learn later on, has other health problems. And that without telling anybody, they get in the leisure seeker to drive from Massachusetts to Florida to Ernest Hemingway's home in the Florida Keys to see it and what happens along the way. And what I don't want to give away the ending. I just love this movie so much. I, I don't know what else to say. It's not coming out to 2018. Um, I... Uh, what did you think of the Lorraine Hansberry uh biopic i saw that you saw a documentary about right uh, right right Lorraine um, Hansberry, called sighted eyes feeling heart right sighted eyes feeling heart uh, refers to her using that quote to say sighted eyes feeling heart cannot fail to observe uh the uh, cruelty that's going on human to human uh in the world essentially like that Lorraine Hansberry, as you know wrote uh, uh raisin in the sun, sun. Um, it was a pretty linear documentary. Obviously, it was from old footage. They had Lloyd Richards, who's been dead for quite some time, uh, speaking. There are other people speaking, but they got the point. I got to learn a lot about Lorraine Hansberry. Maybe I shouldn't compare it to other titles of similar content, but it was not I Am Not Your Negro, no, which is one of the great... Yeah. It didn't have the artistry uh, of that, but in a linear fashion, just one thing after the other, I got to learn about Lorraine Hansberry and the tragedy... And the enormous loss, Lloyd Richards makes the price of what the cost is and what it really means when we lose a great artist who could be a voice uh, and uh, distill uh, experiences that are important to people. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds for one, one, more, one more movie pick. And I know that there are many to pick from, but uh, any, any last ones that you want to share with our, uh, our listeners? Before, yeah, three uh, billboards outside uh, Ebbing, Missouri. The winner of the People's Choice Award. Yeah, uh, Toronto doesn't have a best in, they don't have a jury or anything like that. What happens is people who purchase tickets, they're the only ones who can vote, unless we cheat. People who purchase tickets can vote and put their slip in boxes of which movie uh, they like the most. And the vote went to three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is a breathless movie. I mean, I leaned forward at one point. I just wanted to look at the audience and I saw my whole row leaning forward hmm. and no one breathing at a certain point it's dark it's funny it's powerful great performances woody harrelson francis mcdormand is great in it peter dinklage sam rockwell as the rogue cop 
Mrs. Turan, just what it deals with about uh, uh, some time before the movie started, a woman's uh, daughter uh, was raped and killed. And months later, there's been no results. So she put up three billboards. Why isn't this solved? Why aren't there answers? And why? what about the chief of police? And that starts off a firestorm. Is the latest from Martin McDonough, director right, of he In, did, Bruges, In Bruges. Right. right um, I got to speak to him. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, by the way, also at a, you had to speak a, to Martin McDonough, Guillermo del Toro. You went to the Lady Bird cast, but you were a busy man, Arnold. Well, I, I don't talk to stars. I don't talk to the directors. I, you know, everybody wants to be next to Emma Stone or right. uh, Steve Carell or Bill Pullman or something like that. I'm just strangers to them. I had something to say and to ask them about, and they're not famous in the same way that stars are. Where you want to take the take. The, I'll show you the picture afterwards. You'll see how close we got. But uh, I just wanted to ask him about what I thought was uh, a misdirection in the movie and why he included a certain scene, but I don't think he was that interested in, in telling me or sharing why. I think he just regarded it as a, some neophyte coming and telling him how to direct his film. <laughs> but, you know, there are others who asked that it's, question about that one scene, which I think the movie would have been much more powerful with that one scene taken out actually. And it's only a two or three minute scene. Well, I think that's one that are, is that one you'll be looking to play? Oh, I'm playing a, it. Excellent. Uh, Fox, yeah. you know, clearly Fox Searchlight has, yeah. has the best lineup. Now, I'm not talking about quality films, but I mean, I opened Battle of the Sexes on uh, the 29th. Uh, I'm going to be opening three billboards probably for Thanksgiving. This isn't set in stone yet, and I'll do everything I can to open the Shape of Water on Christmas. I can't think of a better Christmas movie for the adult mind. There, so definitely check out Madison Art Cinemas for many of the movies that we've been speaking about today. Um, can you quickly tell listeners where to go? Where is Madison Art Cinemas? Uh, what's the website? Where, where can people find out more about your theater and, and catch a movie there? Sure. Madison Art Cinemas is located on Route 1 in the center of Madison, right across the street from R.J. Julia Booksellers. Our website is www.madisonart.com. Art is singular. Cinemas. Cinemas is plural. MadisonArtCinemas.com. There you can sign up for our e-newsletter. We have over 5,000 that go out to be able to let them know about special events, what's coming, and how to participate in these events. Well, we will link to uh, MadisonArtCinemas.com on the Deep Focus website. And Arnold, it's truly an honor to have you on the show, and I so appreciate you um, coming on and talking about movies and just sharing your cinematic love with me. So... Arnold Gorlick, everyone, uh, check out his theater, and, and thank you for It's an honor and very enjoyable to me, and thank you. All right. I'm very uh, flattered to be invited. We will be uh, back uh, next week with another episode of Deep Focus, and definitely uh, this time next year with another chat about Toronto Film Fest, but you will hear Arnold's voice well before then. Um, but for a complete archive of over two years of conversations about movies at New Haven, check out deepfocusradio.com. Uh, and coming up next is uh, some more WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio.